This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal contractors have high confidence for the future and in their businesses, especially if they're selling cybersecurity and anything with the word infrastructure in it. That's according to a new index, which purports to be the first of its kind. For how they developed it and what it says, we turn to Alan Chavotkin, a partner at the law firm Nichols Liu and a co-author of the study, and he joins me now in studio. Alan, good to have you back. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tom. And I think this is your first outing with us since your prior post, and so good to know you're still supporting the market. Tell us about the study. What were you trying to get at, first of all? Well, I joined with a private sector company, a proposal consultant called OCI. I've known them for a long time. I've known the president for over 15 years. And in fact, they were a client of mine in my prior work a century ago. So we undertook a study of those who were involved in proposal activity, capture work, a segment of it that's really at the front end of the contracting activities. We surveyed over 5,600 vice presidents and directors of business development captured proposals. And as you noted, this is the first time that anybody's undertaken a study like this of this segment of the uh, government contractor community. All right. So contractors, at least two-thirds of them, are generally optimistic. And the government has spent itself into $28 trillion of debt. A lot of that's contracting dollars. So it's a market that seems to be recession-proof. Is that the reason? I think it's a multiple factors. First of all, spending on government contractors was actually a little lower last year in the last federal fiscal year, and we're still a while to go in this fiscal year to see what the numbers look like. But there's still lots of money out there, and as you noted, uh, a lot of spending on information technology, including cyber. And as the respondents look down the horizon and see what's coming in infrastructure and in data and in the Department of Defense, I think there is reason for optimism about the amount of money and the opportunities that contractors will have uh, in coming fiscal years. And people wonder if there was any real impact other than the gross dollar levels on federal contracting. And of course, there was some big spending in very specific areas, but maybe some of the bread and butter standard areas, as you say, went down a little bit. Anything lessons learned, anything that matters going forward with respect to the pandemic? Well, I think it was clear that over a quarter of the respondents said that the pandemic had an impact on their businesses, a direct impact. And then another 17% said it was a noticeable impact, while only 11% said there was no real impact from the COVID on their business. And so I think there's a number of issues uh, where the workforce was, the federal workforce, many of them teleworking. And so that slowed down proposal activity a little bit. And we had the transition over to the Biden administration, and that had some impact last year. We didn't sample to get that many uh, actualities from people about the rationale. And so we'll make some things up, but it's uh, right. <laughs> it was, it pretty clear that there was a noticeable impact from the COVID on people's perception of the business. The other thing related to that was the challenge of finding new personnel. And I think that may be directly related to the COVID. Lots of people were still trying to work from offices or on government site, and a lot of the workforce didn't want to be on site. And in some ways, it takes a special person to be able to be successful in federal contracting because it is not a business generally where you get instant gratification. And sometimes it's months, years in developing proposals, and there's often a tail process with protests and so forth. And so the payoff can be way down the line from when you conceive of a solution. 
Well, as you've reported on for such a long period of time, there's a very long sales cycle in the federal marketplace. Very few emergency procurements. They certainly exist in disaster recovery areas and others, but not too often. The core of government contracting world is replete with detailed regulations, very specific processes for proposal submissions, and then a long sales cycle of evaluation and award. We're speaking with Alan Chavotkin, a partner at the law firm Nichols Liu and co-author of the OSI study on contractor confidence. And do you have any sense of the change in administration and the change in party? Because often the policies of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy and also of the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs at the Labor Department, plus to say nothing of executive orders, changes the water from salt to fresh to salt, to fresh, back and forth, continually as administrations change. Well, this survey was conducted towards the end of last year and into the early weeks of this uh, new calendar year. So we did ask the question about the positive impact of the Biden administration on business prospects. Only 9% said that the Biden administration had a positive impact. Some of those are because those executive orders and regulations and policy changes were all in transition last year, and so it was hard to see some. But even among the small businesses, which have been specifically targeted by the Biden administration for attention and growth, their responses were uh, pretty mild. Uh, A quarter of the respondents said it didn't have a positive effect at all. It wasn't negative. It just didn't have that positive effect. Uh, Yet they remain confident about the marketplace generally. And maybe tell us a little bit more about the sample. You said 5,600 business development and marketing people. Did it have an information technology bias in your group, or did you also have people that do the myriad of other types of goods and services the government buys? Yeah, we didn't try to sample specifically around IT, and we didn't ask the demographic questions around IT. It split in the terms of respondents, about a third of large business, a third medium, and a third small. Almost 65% were from the D.C. area, but a fair representation from other major federal enclave areas like Texas and Florida, California, where you would expect to have companies with a lot of activity because there's a lot of federal presence and a lot of contracting coming in those states. And the big topic for a lot of agencies, regardless of whether it was the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, is this need for innovative solutions and therefore innovative contractors. And yet there's always that wall that people totally new to the government mostly give up trying to figure out how to get in there unless they can understand the idea of other transaction authority money. But even then, that's kind of a specialty. So what's your sense of the ability of the market to expand, not just in dollars, but in that DIB, say, the defense industrial base and in the general number of companies that do business with the government? Well, it wasn't part of the survey specifically, but I do know from my interaction with the uh, OCI proposal folks that they're doing a lot of work in those other transactions world and other uh, innovative activities. So we're seeing a growing need by contractors for that kind of outside expertise. And we're seeing a growth in those non-traditional contract types. It's still not as significant overall of, of all of the government contracting activity, but it's certainly a growing trend. And agencies are asking for a different set of innovative procedures and uh, innovative solutions even to their traditional issues. All right. And uh, let's use the famous phrase of lessons learned. What did your survey, what did the findings say that contractors need to do to remain effective? That is to say, to be successful at their own businesses. 
Well, I think first is the importance of the federal budget. Not really part of the survey, but if the funds aren't flowing, there's no proposal activity, there's no contract. So getting the funding right for agencies in a timely manner, critical. Uh, Secondly, the workforce. If you don't have the workforce to go uh, and do the work, it doesn't matter how much is available. And so we still see workforce issues and contractors coming up as an issue. Uh, The challenge of finding not only personnel, but qualified personnel in these emerging areas like cybersecurity or big data. If that's the growth area, you've got to be able to attract and retain a workforce around that. And then finally, I think, is the impact of the COVID activities and the related issues. The longer that tail is to get out of that those set of issues and back to whatever normal is going to be into the future, uh, the more valuable it will be because of the impact that that had on so many of the contractors. Alan Chavotkin is a partner at the law firm Nichols Liu and co-author of the Contractor Confidence Index published by OCI. Thanks so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to the index at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. 